You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JCastNetwork.org. Mr. Camarillo. He is. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, so, um, what I wanted to do today was uh, uh, um, introduce to you a book that uh, that's recently come out that I'm uh, very proud of and proud to be a part of. Um, it's called Slavery, Freedom, and Everything Between. Um, I'm not sure what the difference of uh, that is in sl- slavery, freedom, and everything in between, uh, but uh, uh, you can write to the publisher and ask. Um, it's a it's a compilation of essays on uh, Passover. Um, uh, one of those essays is is mine, but there's also some really incredible um, uh, contributors, better than than, than me, of course. Um, Menachem Kreditor, who edited it, Rabbi Aaron Alexander, who also uh, uh, co-edited it. Um, Rabbi uh, Brad Artson, uh, Rabbi Richie Lewis, who's the head of the uh, uh, conservative yeshiva, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, um, uh, uh, Ron Wolfson, Mimi Feig- Rabbi Mimi Feigelson, just really incredible uh, uh, rabbis uh, and thinkers who are in here, an incredible collection. So I wanted to uh, present it to you um, and, uh, and, and maybe uh, read and discuss a couple of, uh, of selections from it. See, Josh uh, Culp is in here. Josh Culp, uh, uh, one of the one sure. of the founders of the conservative yeshiva and and a, and a, a native son of the area, right? From the shore. From the shore. I thought he was from the Philly area. No, from Denver. Oh, interesting. His um, father was a chazan there for a million years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's my. Uh, uh, my, my my teacher. He's uh, he would get offended if I called him my rabbi, but uh, <laughs> my rabbi. Um, and so. Uh, um, it's just a, a nice little volume. You can order it, especially now, you know, we're getting close to, to Pesach. You can get it on Amazon. If you have, like, an Amazon Prime, you know, account, you get, like, two-day shipping, then it'll come to you in time for Pesach and you'll have uh, something to do. But uh, um, all proceeds uh, from the book go to Mazon, which is a really important uh, organization, um, uh, especially around Pesach time, where we say, let all who are hungry come and eat, right? And Mazon is a... Uh, an organization that uh, tries to ensure that uh, everybody who's hungry has an opportunity to eat. Um, a daunting task, but they're a really great organization. So all the proceeds go to Mazon. Um, so, I don't know, I, I thought I would just share with you a couple of the, um, of the um, uh, essays from here. Um, I'll read you mine, um, although some of you actually may have heard it or a version of it um, or seen it. So the version that's in here actually appeared in the Jewish Exponent uh, last year. Uh, so maybe you saw it there. If you were here, the Shabbat I was interviewing uh, for Har Zion, um, I did a version of this as my uh, sermon uh, that, uh, that that Friday night, a longer version of it. Um, uh, but uh, but anyway, so this is... Uh, this. Uh, this is it. Um, it's never had a good title. Um, so here it's on redemption. In the exponent, it was we can't be passive when it comes to matters of redemption, which is even worse. Um, so anyway, uh, you can if you can think of a good, better title, let me know. I got one for you. Oh yeah. Without well, even having heard. All right, it. go. Borrow from Bob Marley and call it Redemption Song. Ah, there you go. All right. <laughs> um, Okay, uh, so and, and I'll, I'll 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 give you a little peek behind the curtain here. So this is going to be a uh, um, uh, a 
comparison between Purim and Pesach, and I never really thought about the relationship between Purim and Pesach uh, before I uh, before I wrote this. But when I was pre- don't get mad at me when I, when I was preparing my uh, um, my materials for uh, for my um, uh, synagogue interviews, um, I knew I was going to have um, you know a. a probably three or four, and I ended up having four, four um, uh, consecutive weekends um, interviewing at different synagogues all over the country, which doesn't give a lot of turnaround time in the middle to prepare your best work as a sermon um, to have, like, fresh material for each one. So I decided I would just, like, write one hopefully really good sermon and, uh, and, and that I could reuse, but that means that it needs to sort of like be topical and have like the feel of being fresh each time. So uh, it turned out that the period that I was going was between Purim and Pesach, or give or take. Um, and so I said, okay, so what if I did something that related both Purim and Passover? Then I then it would be uh, timely and relevant for each one, and people wouldn't care so much that I wasn't talking about the Parsha. Um, so, uh, uh, so that's what I did. I did a little uh, studying and a little research on it, and this is what I came up with. Uh, the Jewish tradition seems to offer two distinct models of redemption, Purim and Pesach redemption. On Passover, the Haggadah uh, emphasizes the Exodus story as being about God lifting the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, carrying us from Egypt on eagles' wings. Pesach is about God redeeming us. Purim redemption, on the other hand, is about us redeeming ourselves. The book of Esther is the one biblical book that doesn't mention God. The Jews' victory over Haman and those who sought to destroy the Jews in Persia is won by the people and for the people. So which kind of redemption should we look for in our lives, Pesach or Purim? There's great comfort and optimism in Pesach redemption, but most of us do not experience God intervening to solve our problems for us. And for its part, Purim redemption is empowering. Still, though, I need the hope that a loving, compassionate God can help me. Fortunately, we're not forced to choose. According to the Babylonian Talmud, we must always celebrate Purim one month before Pesach in order to connect the redemption of Purim to the redemption of Pesach. In the Talmud, the phrase is misamech geula legeula. You're supposed to connect redemption to redemption. So even on a leap year, it's why on a leap year where we add an additional month of Adar, you celebrate Purim in the second month of Adar instead of the first month of Adar, when there's some other principles that would that, that should theoretically have you celebrate Purim in the first month of Adar. You should, you Zrizim know, LeMitzvah, uh, you should be uh, moved to a mitzvah with alacrity, right, to do it first, but we're supposed to do it uh, in the second month of Adar to connect redemptions. The message is that we need both. That salvation is a partnership between God and us. Redemption requires our work and God's help. After all, even the redemption of Pesach could never have happened without people. Though the Passover Haggadah emphasizes God's orchestration of the Exodus, the book of Exodus recalls that God partners with Moses and Aaron to secure the Israelites' freedom. Moses and Aaron represent God to Pharaoh and summon the ten plagues. God also needs the Israelites to join together and march out of Egypt. And at the Sea of Reeds, as the Israelites find themselves trapped between the sea and Pharaoh's army, God waits to split the sea until the people take a role in their own redemption. According to a Midrash, it was not until one man, 
Nachshon ben Aminadav jumped into the sea, wading out into the water until he could no longer breathe, that the sea split, allowing Israel to cross to freedom. The Bible and Midrash emphasize that we may not be passive bystanders in our own redemption. We must act. Pesach only happened because there were because there were Purim Jews in the story. And the same is true with Purim. The story's title, Esther, is the Hebrew word for hidden. Our rabbis interpret this to mean that God is hidden, though present in the Purim story, always working behind the scenes, luring the Jews to triumph. Purim happened because there was a Pesach God in the story. All this reminds us that both the Purim and Pesach stories involve people and God working together. Similarly, God looks to partner with us in our own and the world's redemption. One of my best friends has a young daughter named Eliana. Ellie had a difficult first few months of life, and she had difficulty learning to walk. So my friend used to stand behind Ellie, helping her lift her up by her arms, and gently holding her up while she began taking her own steps forward. This would always make her face light up with joy. But the funny thing was, as soon as he picked her up, Ellie would start crying. And when he put her down, she would cry even more. Ultimately, my friend discovered that Ellie would only stop crying when he resumed helping her walk. My friend learned that if he carried her, Ellie would never walk on her own. But she would also never walk if he left her completely alone. For Ellie's redemption, overcoming her challenges to walking, Ellie needed both Pesach and Purim. I think we're much like Ellie. We all have obstacles to overcome. And if we want to get there, we need to take our own steps. And we need to know that we are not walking alone. We must do the moving, but God stands behind us, helping us to lift up, gently holding us while we take our steps forward. As we move from Purim to Pesach, the Jewish tradition invites us to partner with God, combining God's guidance with our own steps in whatever redemption it is that we need. Very nice. Here she comes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard it. You've heard it, yeah. yeah. I've read it. <laughs> All right, here's one. Here's here's one that you probably haven't. I, I won't give the. So there's one that's very uh, relevant to uh, the conversation we had as a group last week. I sent it to Mindy uh, <clears throat> yesterday. Did you get a chance? Did, did it work? The link? No, the, you didn't look. At it. It. Right, okay. So can I ask a question before we move? Yeah, on? yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I've done I've done the research yet, but I've really been for a while fascinated by this wonderful Hasidic character, Nachshon Ben Aminadav, the mm-hmm. guy who takes the plunge. Not Hasidic, he's from the Midrash, he's earlier. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, he's actually named in the Torah. Well, he's named in the Torah, that's right. He's one he's of one the of chieftains, the princes, he's one of the princes, he's the chief prince of Judah. Um, but then, but the Midrash, you know, it says that he's the one that jumped in. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, yeah. are there any other Midrashim about him uh, that you recall? That's a good question. Um... Not offhand that I can recall, um, uh, but but certainly the the story of him jumping into the sea is uh, right. is is a very early midrash. Uh, it's a um, one of the earliest collections of midrashes called the Mechilta, which is uh, um, from the generation that, that composed the Mishnah. Um, uh, um, uh, put together a collection of midrash on on Exodus it's called the Mechilta, and so he's in the Mechilta. Um, but I can't think off the top of my head okay. of any others. I- uh, 
I'm thinking that um, one of his descendants was rewarded for what he did. So there was mm. something further down the line, something either about the construction of the Mishkan. Or mm. Mm. And it's and it's it's noted that he's a descendant of Nachshon's. There's a midrash. There's a midrash about that. Okay, that that person that. was maybe. I can do a little digging. So your next piece could be, if you're going to use that as a metaphor, uh-huh. you could call it taking the plunge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah it's a great story. I had, in, in the longer version, the, I had a version of the story that uh, Rabbi Ed Feinstein tells. And he tells, that he's just a magnificent storyteller. He has a collection of stories called Capturing the Moon. Um, it, that phrase is a title of like one of the Helm stories that he has in there which is really funny uh, and uh, but it's a great collection of stories and uh, and he's got the Nachshon story in that collection um, uh, and just the way he tells it is really magnificent um, so yeah so that's a, that's a good one taking the fun um, and, I'll, and I'll do a little digging I mean I don't want to get sidetracked on this but I've yeah. often wondered if the reason they did that is there was a there's always been a conscious effort to elevate the tribe of Judah Right, and so they pick on this particular mm. prince of Judah. Right, yeah. Uh, um, there, there, there's, um, you know, if I, I never really uh, studied that midrash, the the original midrash in, in depth. I mean, usually there's a uh, um, there's a, a a textual reason why they chose Nachshon, and, you know, beyond the fact that they like the fact that he's from Judah. It may be that there's one list of the princes where he's listed first or something like that, and, and that's why they say he, you know, he's the first one who went in. Um, so anyway, but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, um, worth more, uh, more, more, more I'll, research I'll and more digging. Yeah. I'll end um, report back. Yeah. This is um, the first time that I have heard that he actually submerged. Mm. I've heard that he that went in... But that he submerged himself. Yeah. So he was really willing to give his life. Yeah. Yeah. That's the. That's I always the, thought of it as Indiana Jones in the third movie when he takes the step <laughs> uh, and the water right. parts immediately. <laughs> With, uh, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> Are you thinking of like when he has that? There's like that invisible that wall, bridge. Right, yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 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 like that, right? He's got a um, in 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 the. Uh, um, in the in, in, yeah, the leap of faith is what it's called yeah, in the right. steps to the Grail. Right. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so I so uh, there is an essay in here that's that's great, really apropos to the conversation we were having last week about uh, about the um, um, about the the tendency we have to um, um, unnecessary stringencies on on Passover um, and uh, why that's you know if you want to do that can of horror. Um, but 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 why it actually may be more harmful than helpful to some people. Um, so that's essay number uh, seventy-five in here. Oh, sorry, page seventy-five. Excuse me, in here. Um, but I want to read you this this nice little one um, that uh, um, my teacher Reb Mimi Feigelson, um has in here. So if you have the book with you, it's, it's page. I do four. like the title on page seventy-five, though. Continued Kashrut slavery. Right. right. <laughs> um, you know, it is a really interesting thing. We have a holiday celebrating freedom, uh, and uh, it's a. Uh, you know, one of the most enslaving holidays that we have. Um, in my my next piece in Haaretz is going to be an argument. It's going to be based really on, uh, on a lot of what we talked about yesterday in uh, um, uh, at Starbucks um, uh, about uh, um, how Passover is sort of you know mischaracterized as being a holiday about freedom. Um, I think it's not uh, so much about freedom as it is about uh, re- redemption, which I think is a different thing. 
Um, but I love I love this little essay that uh, Mimi uh, Mimi Feigelson has in here. Is um, uh, a teacher at uh, at the American Jewish University, uh, one of the world's only female Orthodox rabbis. Um, so she says this. What page we have? Forty seven. Forty seven. If there is a night that is rich with peak moments, traditions, and memories, it's Seder night. Imagine leading a communal Seder, 300 people in Dharmasal. First of all, I love the way she writes because it's exactly the way she talks. Okay, um, uh, so you just have to know her to, to know that. But, uh, but you know, um, uh, I have a picture of her in my office if you want to stop by after you can see, and then you know, it'll all make sense. Okay, uh, imagine leading a communal Seder, 300 people in Dharmasala, India, where throughout the evening people trickle over to you whispering, yelling, but you didn't use the tune that we sing at home. And all I can think then and there is, but you made a choice to be thousands of miles from your home, living in a shack on the top of a mountain for a reason, didn't you? Surely it wasn't to sing the melodies that you sang at home. Smiling, I would keep the thought to myself. My mind always wanders back to that experience when preparing for Pesach. For a moment, I'd like to ask you to see yourself at all the different Seder tables that you've sat at in your lifetime. Whose table was it? Who was there? What did it feel like? What were the conversations about? Observe how these variables change your feelings and memories. Now I want to invite us all to sit at the same table. Have no fear. No plane tickets needed. No change in menu necessary. The shopping you've done is still relevant. What would you do? How would you prepare? What would you need to know? if I told you that this year, and every year to come, you would be sitting at God's Seder table. I've seen two versions of the following teaching. One I learned from Rabbi Mickey Rosen of Blessed Memory. Mickey Rosen was the uh, uh, founder of a uh, uh, synagogue and yeshiva in uh, Jerusalem called Yakar, um, which is in Katamon, a really beautiful place to daven if you're ever in Jerusalem for Shabbat. One uh, I learned from Rabbi Mickey Rosen of Blessed Memory, and the other lurking in the Tosafot in their commentary on the Talmud. The first has to do with Rashi, yes, the Rashi, forgetting to pour the third cup of wine at Seder night before beginning to say Birkat Hamazon. What was he to do? Rashi, the owner of vineyards, and a Seder of only three cups of wine? Could such a thing be? Can you have a Seder with only three cups of wine? We talked about this yesterday, too. Can you have a Seder with only three cups of wine? We're taught that even though he invited those sitting at the table to say Birkat Hamazon, by reciting the traditional invitation to begin the concluding blessing of the meal, he was allowed to pour the third cup because Atacha de Rahmana Samchinan, which means literally sitting at God's table. Now go back to your memory bank and draw out all those amazing negotiations around the table regarding Afikoman presence after an even more exciting scavenger hunt to find it. I remember some 30 years ago my brother asking my grandfather, jokingly, for help to buy a home in Israel as an Afikoman present. A far call from Grandpa's traditional $25. That's pretty big. $25 is a pretty big present, too. (laughs) You've got like uh, five uh, Sacagawea dollars. Um... (laughs) Jokingly, Grandpa replied, When it's relevant, give me a call. Seriously, David responded, It's relevant. Dina and I are getting married. It turned out that Dina pulled the same stunt in her home as a way of breaking the news. With all these memories floating around, try to imagine forgetting to eat the afikomen. Imagine, 
After all these wonderful moments, a designated person invites all present to say Birkat Hamazon before everyone actually ate the afikomen. How does one conclude a Seder without eating the afikomen? Much more happily, I would suspect. (laughs) (laughs) A taste in our mouth that is meant to bring us through, uh, through the manna all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the wheat of the Tree of Knowledge. Uh, there's a couple of things in there. First of all, that's a beautiful image. To, 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 to the afikoma is not just the. We think of the afikoma as it's a, it's a remembrance of this of the paschal lamb. And she's taking it even further back, right? The, the manna and the tree of knowledge, which apparently was a wheat bush. I don't know, um, a wheat stalk. It's interesting. It is here that Tosafot will pull out the same principle that availed Rashi to pour that cup of wine, sitting at God's seder table, atacha de rachmana samchinan. In both cases, we're taught that what defines the conclusion of the meal and the shift of consciousness from one part of the dinner to the next is the consciousness of Baal Habayit, the master of the home, and not any of the guests sitting at the table. Does this mean, for example, for example that Rashi was a guest at his own table? Indeed, yes. It's here that we are taught that even though it may appear that we are the ones that engage in all the work and toil required for Seder night, it's at the moment that we sit down that we are asked to surrender ownership of all that's in front of us and recognize that we are all children of our Creator and we are sitting together, regardless of where we may be geographically, at God's table. For this reason, I'd like to return to some of the questions that I posed in the opening. What would you do? How would you prepare? What would you need to know if I told you that this year, and for all years to come, you would be sitting at God's table? Atacha de Rahmana Samchinan. What would it mean to be set free of the enslavement of our self-definitions and possessions? How can we open our heart and soul to be in life and belong to God in a way that we've never experienced before? What does it mean that our hands are no longer holding on to emotional, psychological, and even spiritual territories that we have declared in the past as mine, allowing us to receive divine abundance like never before? For Rabban Gamliel, as we will read in the Haggadah, Seder night is defined by three words, Pesach, Matzah, and Maror. For me, the prerequisite for this are the three Aramaic words, I pray that this Seder night we will be blessed with the freedom and courage to sit at God's Seder table together. I pray that we will be able to greet each other with Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach as we sit down together, knowing, trusting, and believing that indeed, Atacha de Rahmana Samchina. It's a, um, a, a beautiful image, a beautiful image to hold. First of all, um, I don't know if you can tell by, by, hearing, uh, by reading her words or hearing her words through my voice, but uh, she, um, is, um, she was a, a, a devoted student of Reb Shlomo Karlobach, and she, she talks and, and writes and thinks like him, and I can see these, both these elements of her personality. She's a devoted student of Reb Shlomo Karlobach, and she's got you know, all these like exclamation points and... Um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, this sort of um, uh, loving images are, are very Reb Shlomo. She also was a student of um, um, uh, Madame Coletta Abu Muscat, who is a uh, a teacher of, uh, of of spirituality and imagery, um, uh, who uh, 
uh, was also my mother-in-law's uh, teacher. Um, and so she's, the, the use of imagery that Remini is able to do because of her uh, studying with uh, Madame Colette um, is, is really beautiful. I mean, I don't know if you're able to like actually picture in your head what it would look like to be sitting at God's Seder table, but I, I found it hard not to um, envision that while I was uh, reading her words, and I thought it was really, really a, a, a magnificent exercise um, of you know what what that would feel like, what that would look like um, to to be at God's table. All right. Um, so hopefully uh, you'll have a chance to pick up a, a copy of the book and uh, uh, what's that? So the gift shop uh, um, couldn't order it because they don't order through Amazon and uh, they, their their uh, supplier did not have it. So uh, I'll uh, uh, if you if, uh, I can I, I'm happy to, uh, to 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 give you a copy or to sell you a copy and then I can get a, a, a new copy. Um, I have a couple of copies as you can see. Um, and uh, and if not, you can get it on uh, Amazon. Um, you can you know um, uh, in West Philly they're selling it on the street. Bootleg copies. So it's really you know it's just blowing up and it's uh, it's all out there, but it's for a good cause and hopefully it'll uh, it, uh, deepen your pace off. Cog some air.